Please pray with me. Father, we offer you this time and these scriptures and pray that you will breathe them to life, that you will call us into more intimate fellowship with your son and that you will help us be transformed in our character to be ever more like him. For it is in his name that we offer you ourselves in this time. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. The season of uh, Easter in the church is so rich. There are so many marvelous biblical stories that you could go in 10,000 different directions. Uh, so what I'd like to do this morning, because most folks have been through a lot of the services, is just remember some of the highlights that have happened to set the stage for why today is particularly uh, important, as of course every Sunday is, but there, why this, is, what the focus is for the, today um, for where we are as a people right now. So if you were, came during Holy Week on Thursday night, um, you had the institution of the Lord's Supper and then Jesus washing the disciples' feet and that manifesting great uh, servanthood. It's a beautiful picture, that scene, um, of the, um, the ministry of Jesus. Uh, remember, he, on Thursday night, Jesus rose from the table and put off his outer garment, became a servant, washed their feet. When he'd finished that, he put his garment back on and took his place back again at the table. God the Son did much the same thing where he, he set aside the raiment of divinity. It was born into the world as a baby and lived as a servant. And when he'd finished serving, he rose again from the dead and took again all of the perks and prerogatives of divinity and then takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. But from the Thursday night, we move to Friday where... Um, uh, Jesus suffers through the night in Gethsemane and then is crucified. And then Sunday, um, a couple weeks ago, we celebrated the resurrection. Um, there are a couple of things about that that were particularly uh, significant uh, for me. One of them was that this Easter Sunday was 50 years um, since I met Jesus on Easter Sunday, 1972. Um, Notice that probably 90% of you weren't born yet, and, uh, and yes, it was 1972, um, not 1872, in case you had been wondering about that. Um, so it was a particularly fun day to, to think of the gospel there. But I particularly liked the verse, if you remember, when the women came and told the disciples that the grave was now empty, uh, it says the disciples dismissed what they said as an idle tale. And that's a reminder to us that this great thing has happened where Jesus has risen from the dead, but everybody hasn't received it yet. They're missing out. So this is our first landmark of four. The first landmark is that people are missing something as they're born naturally into the world, and they need to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And to um, come into that relationship, he, we confess our sins to him and accept him as Lord and commit to follow him in the fellowship of the church. Uh, and that's our first step. And what he promises that he will do is he will take up residence inside us and have fellowship with us. Now, my um, conversion experience, my turnaround was not emotional and not um, particularly visible. Um, I was a pilot in the Air Force and was doing very well externally. I had a great job, 
um, flying all over the world, plenty of money, challenge, responsibility, but I had a great emptiness inside. And one day as I was pondering the fact that I'd done what I had set out to do, but still had this great emptiness, I remembered what a stranger had said to me one night. I was out on the edge of the Air Force Base in the dark in the desert looking at the sky because there are millions of stars visible in the darkness. And this strange guy came up to me and said, in every man there is a God-shaped void that only Jesus Christ can fill. Remember that, that's going to be important in your life. So later on when I was surveying my life and kind of depressed that I'd done the things I'd set out to do but wasn't any more fulfilled than I'd been when I started, I remembered that and I thought, I wonder if that's true that there certainly is a void in my life. Is it a God-shaped void that only Jesus can fill? And pondered that for a while, encouraged by some friends who were uh, faithful. And then that's when on Easter Sunday, I said, Lord, I will go wherever you say go, do whatever you ask me to do, be whatever you ask me to be, and say whatever you ask me to say. If you'll do two things, be real in my life and satisfy the emptiness inside. Something changed at that point, and he settled in like a perfect jigsaw puzzle piece into the place, and I realized that for the first time in my life, I had some wholeness. Uh, life wasn't perfect. I certainly wasn't perfect. I haven't been completely faithful in following Jesus, although he's been completely faithful in being with me since that time. My experience was not externally very dramatic. The lesson we had about St. Paul was a little more dramatic. He's riding, he's on the road to Damascus to carry on his um, vocation of persecuting the followers of Jesus and killing them. When he is thrown off of his animal and there's a blinding light, so he's lost his sight, and he's on the ground and he hears a voice saying, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul actually asks the two great questions that we should ask in our any encounter with Jesus. Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? But anybody who was with him could tell something big was going on. So sometimes people's turnaround in life, coming to faith in Christ, is very dramatic. Other times it's much more quiet and more docile. So this is the first step, is coming into a relationship with Christ, where I was changed from emptiness and I had all kinds of character flaws that the Lord began to work on. And I can remember oftentimes he would say, kind of tap me on the shoulder and kind of give me the sense that he was saying, you don't have to do that anymore. Um, and so I heard that quite a lot. Um, Saul had a big turnaround. And obviously, he didn't continue persecuting Christians. So, remember, Easter Sunday, the gospel lesson said, well, some doubted. Then the next Sunday, we had Jesus appearing Easter evening, appearing to the, to the disciples as they're locked away um, in the room. He came through the, the walls and the locked door with his glorified body, shows him his hands and his side, and says, peace be with you not just a greeting. He said shalom, which if you go down the street in Jerusalem today, 
uh, people you pass by will very likely say shalom to you as you pass. Uh, peace. But he's talking about peace being restored between God and man. And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Those of you who were here yesterday, remember we were talking about the sin in the garden where Adam and Eve in their creation had the Holy Spirit living inside, but when they sinned, their sin like pierced that spirit, which is kind of like a balloon, which is where the breath of God lived inside them. And that fluttered away. And because of that wound from the time of the sin in the garden until Jesus, nobody could have God living inside them. So as you read the Old Testament passages, it talks about the Spirit resting on people. But after the resurrection of Jesus, when he comes to the, to the disciples, he breathes on them. So because of his cross, death, and resurrection... Their spirits are healed as they come to him in faith. And when he breathes on them again, they are a new creation, just like, <laughs> excuse me, just like what had happened in the first creation with Adam and Eve. Pollen is still attacking. Um, so they're born again of the spirit. And then he says, as the father sent me, I send you. So you're thinking, okay, they are whole. And they're commissioned, so now it's time to get to work. But Jesus says one other thing. He says, but wait. Wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. And that's the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit uh, descends and empowers them. Of course, God's Spirit was living inside the believers, but power came upon them and was released through them. Basically, it's a simple prayer. You can live your life as a Christian one of two ways. One is you could say, I'm following you, Jesus. I commit to follow you, and I will do so with all of my strength and all the resources that I have. You could also say, Lord Jesus, I commit to you and will follow you. I commit to do that with all my resources and all the strength that I have. But in addition to that, I invite you to work in me and through me supernaturally. Because the task of restoring the kingdom of God's dominion to the world is greater than human strength alone can achieve. So we really need um, the power of the Holy Spirit to multiply the work that we do. And this invitation to be empowered by the Holy Spirit is given to every Christian. But just as every person does not say yes to Jesus as Lord... Not every person who has said yes to Jesus as Lord invites him to come and work in their life and through their life supernaturally. That's the second milestone uh, that's critically important in our life as kingdom people. Now, the third one is revealed in our gospel lesson today. You remember the story back before the crucifixion, we had Peter who was this wonderful and impulsive guy who was always kind of shooting his mouth off and saying, I'm with you, Jesus. I got your back. I'll even die with you. Uh, we're all set. And Jesus said to him, no, actually, no. Like before morning, before the rooster crows, 
you're going to deny me three times. Remember that heartbreaking scene where he's close enough to Jesus to see him being suffering, but um, when somebody said, hey, I, I recognize your accent. You're from New York City like Jesus. And he says, no, I'm not. I'm not any New Yorker. What are you talking about? Actually, it was Galilean, but you get the picture. Um, three times he's challenged if he's a follower of Jesus, and three times he says no. And then when the rooster crows, he realizes what he's done, and he's utterly devastated, and he leaves completely um, emotionally destroyed and distraught. Now, Peter's denial had happened by a charcoal fire. So you notice in this third appearance, Jesus appears to them next to a charcoal fire where he's cooking fish for them for breakfast. And then watch his, his redemption. He wants Peter to be set free, not just to be forgiven, but to be set free. And so three times Peter denied him by a charcoal fire where he was warming, warming himself. Now three times Peter gets to affirm his love for Jesus next to a charcoal fire in the resurrection. The Greek text, I wish we had time to go into it, the, the different words for love that are there, it's a fascinating interplay. But here's the biggest thing to remember is the redemption of Jesus is so complete that Peter's not just forgiven for his failure, he is redeemed from it and set free. This is the third, third pillar in our life, third milestone. First, coming to faith in Christ and what's missing there being filled by a relationship with Jesus. Second, what's missing in power in our lives is filled with the Pentecostal power of the Holy Spirit. The third thing is personal freedom where we are transformed and healed so that the wounds that we've carried around like this gigantic sack of rocks, we're actually set free from them. And our lives are actually changed. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, the truth is not just a concept. The truth is a person. Because Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So when he says the truth will set you free, he says when you get to know him and walk with him, that the fruit of that is you're going to become free. And then he says, and if the son will set you free, you are free indeed. We all have these wounds and issues and bondages from which we need to get freed. Some of us have more obvious ones than others, but everybody's got them. And it's a lifelong thing. It's not an instant thing saying, well, I met Jesus, experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, then I got set free, and things have been perfect ever since. It would be nice, but it doesn't happen like that. So we have to continue finding out, ooh, I, I didn't even realize I had that area of bondage in my life. But I obviously do. Help, Lord, help me get more free. So metaphorically, Jesus builds a new charcoal fire to whatever the circumstances are for my need for healing or your need for, for healing and personal freedom. And then he comes and speaks a transforming word to us so we are more free than we were. I have a friend who says, I'm freer than I was yesterday, 
But you know what? I'm not as free as I expect to be tomorrow. Because Jesus is at work to set us free. That third pillar. Now there's the fourth pillar. Um, and that is one of maturity. If you look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, it's fascinating to see that Paul is writing to this church that is filled with people who had extravagant manifestations of the Holy Spirit in their life. They were uh, believers. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They had all kinds of nifty spiritual gifts that they were manifesting. But Paul says this verse in chapter 2. He said, I couldn't speak to you as men. I had to speak to you as uh, children. I couldn't give you meat. I could only give you milk because you were so immature. Well, now, how could this be? They had all these resources in their life. Well, it's because maturity, uh, emotional maturity, is a different issue than spiritual life. So salvation in Christ is a gift. The power of the Holy Spirit is a gift. And if we pursue it, freedom is a gift. Maturity is something that is worked out between us and the community in which we live. Sadly, maturity is not something that you can achieve on your own. The way we are built, we cannot manifest maturity skills unless we see them manifest in someone else. I had a remarkable situation when I was growing up. My father was off fighting in the Korean War. He was gone for five years from the time I was a toddler up until I was almost six. And at the same time, my grandfather, who was this amazing man, um, he was there present every day because he had just retired as a general from the military after being in World War I and World War II. At 12 years old, his father had died around the turn of the 20th century. And at 12, he went to work in a sawmill stationed next to, a, next to a big strapping black guy and they did manual work together cutting trees into boards. And he worked until all of his five siblings were out of school. Somehow at night, he'd managed to do so much study and reading um, on his own and pursuing things that he was accepted by the University of Mississippi, not having any more formal school since he was 12, went there for two years and then went to West Point, got an appointment to West Point, graduated in 1916 and went immediately to World War I where he fought, if you're a historian, in the very famous artillery battle, the Battle of Chateau Thierry. And then in World War II, he rose to the rank of general, where as a general, he won a silver star for gallantry on the field of battle, which not many generals do. He was George Patton's chief of staff there at the Battle of the Bulge. So a remarkable guy who had retired, and with my father gone, I was with my grandfather every day. In fact, my earliest memory of all memories is my grandfather carrying me around in his army starched uniform shirt with the insignia removed because he was retired, the stiffness of it rubbing against my, my cheek and I could have the fresh smell 
as we walked around. And I can remember my eyes being closed as he carried me around and he whispered in my ear, duty, honor, country. The motto of West Point, the US Military Academy. He manifested so many maturity skills, whatever things I know about that, almost all of them I learned from him watching him do things. I'll just give you an example. Um, when I was little, there were some bullies in the neighborhood. And I was the object of their attack regularly. Finally, one day I came home and he could tell I was upset and that I'd been crying. He was just a little boy. And he waved me over. He's not very vocal. But he scooped me up, put me in his lap, and held me really tight, close. And it kind of forced me to join my breathing with his. So he had this slow, measured breathing, and I calmed down with it. And I can remember feeling my heart racing and then feeling it slow and joining in rhythm with his steady, unflappable heart rate. And finally, he called me boy, usually, boy, what's going on? And, you know, I'm still sniffly and, well, it's these boys, they're mean and they're a bunch of them and they're all together and they're bullying me. And I kind of leaned back into him and he held me tight again and rocked just a little bit quietly and then finally pulled me back, looked me in the face and said, Boy, remember this, a hard-boiled egg is always yellow inside. Now, I'm not the smartest bulb in the chandelier, <laughs> but I knew he was not talking about hard-boiled eggs. He was talking about bullies. And he was telling me that bullies were actually inside cowards, that they were doing things, manifesting their cowardice and trying to make up for it. Now, here's what I knew as a little person. My grandfather was never wrong. He was a genuine war hero. He had thousands and thousands of men following him. He became the commander of the whole Third Army. I don't know how many gazillion people that is. And my grandfather said... A hard-boiled egg is always yellow inside. So I knew that those bullies were actually cowards. There was no question in my mind. It wasn't a matter of, I wonder if he's right. It was a question of, I wonder when I will get to demonstrate that my grandfather was right. Two days later, walking through the neighborhood where I'd always been accosted by these punks, and three of them came up toward me ready to... Um, to beat me up, only things were different. The circumstances were the same, but I had changed. And I knew my grandfather was right. And I can even remember standing there the way that he did with the ramrod shoulders of a West Point cadet, and he would hold out his hand like this with crooked fingers. And I said to them, Stop! or I will hurt you. 
they looked at me with shock and surprise. And then the leader said, let's get out of here. And they turned and ran away. Now, I was not the least bit surprised because, like I said, my grandfather was never wrong. And I was glad to get home um, and share with him. He lived right by us and share with him what had happened. These kinds of maturity steps only happen in our life when we see them. We need to go through five stages of maturity, infant, child, adult, parent, and elder. Not everybody will become or needs to become an elder. The elder's role is seeing to a whole community. But we should all move from being infants and children into being adults and parents in maturity. Um, but many of us don't. So here's the thing. Since you can't make it happen on your own, what do we do in this fourth pillar? How do we, we can, you can come to Christ, you can pray for the power of the Holy Spirit, you can experience personal freedom, but what about this maturity thing? Well, here's the deal. Look for people who manifest the life skills that you need to have and spend time with them. And you will begin to mirror the strengths that they have. Dan Crenshaw, the congressman with the eye patch, says courage breeds courage. I don't know that he knows this, but he was speaking a truth about brain science. There's something in your brain called mirror neurons that when you see an attribute, you can assimilate it and manifest it yourself. Now today in confirmation, we've institutionalized the opportunity to pray for power of the Holy Spirit for the people being confirmed. It's not the only time you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You, anytime you can ask God to release his power in your life and, and he loves to do that. But the church does this service to make sure that people will have an opportunity to have prayer for the release of the Spirit. So that's what we're going to pray for today for these candidates, and we'll reaffirm their commitment to Christ. Then uh, it's up to everybody to pursue individual freedom and to pursue maturity. So I'll invite you, as you pray for the candidates who are being confirmed, to assess your own life and say, which, what are, of these four steps, where am I? Have I actually made a commitment to Christ? If you haven't, today's a perfect day. Have you actually prayed for the power of the Holy Spirit to be released in your life? If you haven't, great opportunity. Have you started pursuing personal freedom? If not, say, tell the Lord, I'd like to proceed in experiencing more and more freedom. Show me, Lord, where I'm not free and help me get free. And maybe you need to take steps of maturity. Begin to find people that have maturity skills you don't have and emulate them. And those uh, maturity skills will begin to appear in your own life. Just the same way that I didn't have the maturity skill that my grandfather did of courage in the face of a challenge. And he showed me, demonstrated for me how I should walk in that. So you have four big opportunities today. And everybody in this room has the opportunity and the need to be praying for at least one of those things. Some of us may need to pray for all four. But as we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit in the candidates today, I would invite you to pray for them, for wonderful things to happen for them, but then also pray for yourself and ask the question, what steps should I take today?
What should be going on with me? Meet Jesus, release the power of the Spirit, take another step in freedom, or take another step in maturity. Um, all of us need to do at least one of those things. And we need to do it today. And now, to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, be ascribed all might, majesty, dominion, and power as is most justly due, both now and forever. Amen.